try to paint co-workers as one thing. You know, I think we always try to focus on what divides us, you know, and there's just, there's a lot of commonality. I'm really worried about the community and what's going to happen here. At the end of the day, that's, that's what it's all about. It's about a living wage and being able to provide for your family. We need to make sure that the people that are most affected by the problem are at the forefront of developing solutions, are listened to by state and federal decision makers, and are not asked as an afterthought, you know, what do you need or what do you think of this solution? Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, where we speak with folks taking bold actions for a thriving planet. Our aim is to bridge divides and provide calls to action to help you find your role for positive impact. I'm your host, Laura Tomov. A just transition. We're hearing this term a lot lately, though calls for it have been coming for decades. As the world is inevitably shifting away from fossil fuels to a more sustainable energy source, a just transition calls to make sure this shift is done as fair or just as possible, keeping in mind the impacts and benefits to people people who are affected first and foremost by climate change impact, as well as those affected first and foremost by the exit of the fossil fuel industry. There are many layers of impact we must look at within this topic, and so many stories to hear from. But today's episode will look at what a just transition means for American communities that have been economically and socially tied directly to the coal industry. Around the world, the extraction of coal has not only directly employed and supported thousands of workers and their families, but it's often the economic driver for all sectors in an entire town or region. Tax revenues from the coal industry can support statewide services, such as schools and housing. From Appalachia to Navajo Nation and communities tied to the coal industry around the world, there are local leaders and communities taking action to create sustainable, equitable opportunities. Today we'll hear stories from those on the ground level of this concept. We'll speak with someone working with communities around the United States, another one specifically in Appalachia, and a current employee of a coal plant in Montana, and what he wants the public and policymakers to know about his community. The first guest on today's episode is Heidi Binko, the executive director and co-founder of the Just Transition Fund, or JTF, which is currently the only national philanthropic initiative focused solely on coal community transition. Heidi has worked for more than 17 years on climate and energy issues, working with coal communities throughout the U.S. and internationally in Australia. She speaks with us about what a just transition means for coal communities in America and what important concepts policymakers and the public need to keep in mind as we move forward. We launched the JTF in 2015. And, uh, you know, the goal was really to help uh, communities across the country where either coal plants or coal mines were closing and, you know, to really help them alleviate the economic distress that they were facing because of these closures. And, you know, for, for me, there was the, the philanthropic experience, there was my work experience with all these communities. But, you know, on another note, it was deeply personal. I come from a small town in Western New York where there was a coal plant where my aunt worked for, for 40 years. She was a member of, of the IBEW. My mom worked in the school district uh, in that community. And then I had coal miners in my family from Logan, West Virginia. So this idea of coal transition and coal workers and coal communities sort of being left out as we make this transition really hit home to me. And in that work, in your current role with the Just Transition Fund, what is the unique approach of JTF and how you guys operate? 
So there's a couple things I, I would I would say to you. You know, I mentioned to you that we focus on places around the country where coal plants and coal mines have closed. Um, and again, the, the idea there is to really approach this from an economic perspective. And what we're trying to do is make sure that we are supporting equitable and inclusive economic growth in these places so that the both the workers and the community members have the ability to build a brighter economic future for their for their family. There is just so much economic distress that these communities are facing. And not only are direct workers affected, but typically when coal plants or coal mines close, they can be the largest taxpayer in a community. And so we work with communities across the country that have lost and local governments have lost upwards of 70 to 80% of their revenue. There's a good statistic that I always cite, typically for every direct power plant or coal mine worker, a town loses four other additional indirect jobs. So Mm -hmm. that's a whole lot of of economic hurt once you talk about local government budgets being reduced and then um, public services, school districts, uh, health services in the community really really being cut. So we took a look at that economic distress and we came up with our approach. And so first and foremost, we operate as a hybrid. We both make direct investments in these communities and we provide um, on the ground community technical assistance to help local governments, local leaders actually get started and launch community driven plans to develop tangible economic roadmaps. You know, we realize that communities need access to much more than just the grant, right? They really need um, oftentimes access to specialized expertise to get started. And so, you know, that's first and foremost. Second thing is that we really approach this work with a belief that communities have the power and the wisdom to to create their own solutions. There's already a lot of really innovative economic development and workforce development programs that are happening all across the country. So this to us is a bottom-up approach. This is not somebody coming into a community and saying, hey, you need to do this, right? That is really um, core to to our approach and the way we work. And then the third thing that I would say is, you know, as you can imagine, there are a lot of communities around the United States that are being hit with this transition away from coal right now, and we can't work everywhere. So what we did is we really took uh, an analytical data-driven approach to identify the communities that were economically hardest hit that contained at-risk populations. And we, we started there, right? So that means that we do a lot of work in rural communities. We do a lot of work in tribal communities. Again, it's going to the places in the country where the need is the greatest. And for those outside of coal communities, you know, for those within the communities, they know the realities of the benefits that were brought by this industry and to their community, but also the hardships that they are now facing or have been facing in the recent past. Can you paint a little bit of the picture of what that looks like? You know, I I think first, these communities have been beholden on a on a really strong mono economy, right? And that mono economy did a lot to help the workers and those and those families and, and even oftentimes made a lot of investments in the in the communities. You know, as we transition away from coal and you know eventually away from all fossil fuels, we have to recognize that while everyone is going to be experiencing changes, these communities and these workers are on the front line of a, of a new economic reality, right? These are places like particularly coal communities that suffered uh, an extreme amount of economic distress. With COVID, we're just seeing this made increasingly worse. So it's almost, if you will, 
um, layers upon layers of economic distress have been have been added to these these places. And so, you know, as we think about our future as a country and our future as a world, and we think about trying to get to that low carbon economy that we want, we have to realize that these communities are going to be hit first, and they're going to be hit the hardest. And so, I think for all of those reasons, you know, we need to pay attention to what's happening there. Right, and how this isn't new, right, for these communities. And, you know, it might be easy for the public to pin a lot of what's happening now and the transition away from coal to the current administration, right, as we often do. Can you explain a little bit about how this has been coming now for decades and kind of the inevitability of the shift away from coal that the whole world has been seeing Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, the Obama administration had launched an interesting program called the the Power Initiative. And and that was the first time that federal funding was ever made available to help communities in transition. And that was launched in fiscal year 2015. And the JTF, me and my partner at the time, um, really created the fund in response to that because, you know, we saw the need in these communities to be able to, they needed to access federal funds, right? Even though it was just a small, a small bit. These communities have been, particularly Appalachia, have been experiencing the decline of coal for 10, 15, you know, even longer. And it's it's inevitable at this time. I mean, coal is going away. We can see that with, with market forces, right? There's not a debate. And there are certainly, you know, still pockets of resistance, but you see fewer and fewer people really trying to keep coal sort of in the mix, if you will. And so it's an industry that's, that's going away and that um, is not likely to come back. And as we're having this conversation in early February, it was just last week that the Biden administration announced several actions that they'll be taking to mitigate climate change, including specific focus on this concept, right? Can you tell us a little bit about the specifics of what they announced in supporting a just transition for coal communities? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'd love to, to to talk a little bit about that. We at the Just Transition Fund, with a number of our of our partners, launched an initiative in early 2019 called the National Economic Transition Initiative, and the idea there was to bring um, disparate economic and workforce development experts together from around the country to come together to articulate what is needed at the federal level. What we wanted to do is pull different local leaders from the country together to speak almost with with one voice, right? As best as we could to talk about, you know, what's needed and what are the primary investments that the incoming administration needed to tackle. So we released um, an interesting platform in June that speaks to that. And we've been really excited to see that a number of places have sort of picked up the mantle of the need to to work on economic transition. And Biden has said um, quite a bit on the campaign trail. And one of the things that he talked about was creating a task force or working group for coal and power plant communities. And the administration actually did that via executive order last week. So that's um, one of the things that, that the NET initiative and the NET partners asked for. We're hoping to see that task force which is supposed to issue a report in 60 days, morph into the creation of some type of office with 
which will be able to, to really dig in and make the investments on these issues, the workforce, the economic development, the infrastructure investments that these communities need. It's pretty widely accepted that addressing this problem of economic transition in these transitioning communities is going to have to be a key part of climate policy. And it's, it's another really promising sign that the administration is doing this very early on in their administration. So I think partners around the country are, are optimistic um, about what's coming in the next four years. And with that work of a just transition, you know, it'll be different for each community, right? Because especially with your work and the work of JTF, you really leave it up to the community to lead and have it be customized to what the best needs of that community are. Can you give us an example of what that transition can look like in some of the communities you've been working with? And some of that may very well still be in progress of transitioning, but what are some examples of what that can look like? It is different in different places based on the asset of a place, right? You know, a a great example is solar energy. That's something that works um, really no matter where you go, but the solution might be solar in eastern Kentucky, whereas it's wind in Wyoming, right? In each of these places, you know, obviously the idea is to move these communities away from the mono economies that they've been dependent on. And we want to build a diversified and strong economy. So that doesn't mean that we're just going to, you know, shut down all the coal in this country and go to clean, right? Clean energy is going to be a piece of it, but it's also going to be key investments in the reclamation economy, the knowledge economy, um, sustainable tourism, sustainable agriculture, other low carbon sectors that allow us to create and stimulate um, economic development locally, provide you know, good family sustaining jobs in new sectors, but that also take into account the, you know, the, the dual problem of, of climate change. We're investing in a lot of strategies that are focused on clean energy for one, right? So we're working with a, a really interesting group in Southern West Virginia called Coalfield Development. And they took a look at the needs in West Virginia's economy to identify, you know, what are some of the emerging sectors where they could train former co-workers and community members for jobs. And so they've got a really interesting workforce development program where they train former coal miners to install solar panels, right? They're also training former coal miners to, to help reconstruct dilapidated buildings in West Virginia. In other places um, in Eastern Kentucky, we're working with groups that are working on energy efficiency upgrades and, and teaching a new workforce how to make homes more efficient and how to, you know, how to weather, weatherize, right? And so those key investments in energy efficiency are turning into jobs. And then in other places, you know, like in the Western Slope in, in Colorado, we're looking at sustainable agriculture. There's been a lot of really innovative work done to build regional food hubs, because that does a lot to bring wealth into these communities with a focus on, you know, again, the low carbon sector. So, you know, those are several, you know, we're, we're working with this really interesting group in, again, also in Southern West Virginia, that's focusing on helping young, talented West Virginians stay, right? They recognize the brain drain that's happening in West Virginia. These are kids who, you know, their, their parents, their, their dads were coal miners, their uncles, their grandparents were coal miners. 
years. They left, right? But they're coming back, right? They're coming back and um, Generation West Virginia is helping to connect them with jobs with not only employers around West Virginia, but even out of state. Those are, those are jobs that are helping rural and more isolated, hard-hit communities take advantage of, of some of the, the growth in those industries. So again, it looks differently in different places, but I think the important thing is that we need to remember there's no silver bullet, right? It's never going to be just investment in any one thing. And what the community is going to transition to, just like we would diversify our financial portfolio, is likely going to be a number of things. That's how we create those really vibrant and resilient economies going forward that are going to be resistant to more resistant to future economic shocks. Yeah, for sure. No, it's that diversification, right? That's really important and having it be community-led and community-driven. And I know you guys are doing work with the Navajo Nation that is a really cool example and um, kind of a base model for what can be transferred to other communities. Do you mind sharing a little bit about that work? Yeah, I love the work with our, our partners out on the Navajo and Hopi reservations. We've been working on the closure of NGS and the associated Kante mine since we started. Uh, it was some of the first projects that we did I and mean, we continue to do. The Navajo Nation was predicted to lose about 25% of their budget once the plant and mine shut down. And the Hopi reservation was predicted to lose upwards of 80% of their of their financial revenue. That's how significant those infrastructure and those those entities are to those local communities. And you know, these are places where many families don't have access to electricity or running water. So the needs are great. And you know, talk about COVID um, affecting things. You know, the Navajo Nation has been deeply, deeply impacted by by COVID, right? So we support a number of of community groups, uh, Native Renewables, which is is working to help install off-grid solar systems on on homes to to electrify the 15,000 homes that are are without uh, electricity on the reservation. We support a wonderful woman, Nicole Horseherder at at TNA. And TNA is working on a variety of things. They're they're working actually with Native Renewables on some solar workforce training modules and programs. But Nicole has also been doing a a lot of the great policy work, both with the state of Arizona and with the Navajo Nation to really think about what is this transition gonna look like and what do we need going forward. We're also working with Native American entrepreneurs who are trying to start Native-led, culturally appropriate new businesses. So there's, again, a number of different solutions, but the work in that area has been particularly rich and investment is still hugely needed. Uh, It really shows you the importance of letting the community lead, right? So that it's things that are appropriate for the geography and the land and the culture, right? And there has been a lot of talk on the policy associated with what's needed for a just transition. Has there been any talk, at least with Just Transition Fund, or that you've seen on the ground of the fossil fuel industry itself stepping in to help to support in this transition? Yeah, we actually, at the, at the JTF, we're positioned almost as a 
a neutral intermediary, if you will, right? I mean, we work, we recognize the importance of working with a lot of different partners on both the left and the right. You have to, to do this work because so many different stakeholders are affected. And because we're in that role, oftentimes of facilitating and convening and helping support the communities to get what they need in these community-driven planning processes, you know, we, we talk a lot with labor, we talk a lot with utilities, um, we talk a lot with environmental justice groups and climate justice groups and workforce organizations in these in these communities and I, I think this doesn't have to be divisive but but to get to your question about you know what has the industry done we're starting to see some you know utilities wanting to play a bigger role and wanting to play a more active role and help the communities and so you know there's not a lot of success stories yet but there's been a lot of interest by by utilities I think in the last number of months um, there was a great example of a utility making a big investment in transition actually with the Navajo Nation. That was a big win for the community groups that we support. Hmm. No, that's that's good to see that that involvement is starting to happen, at least in some places. And with a lot of the conversation around fossil fuels and the jobs and renewables and environmental impact, there's a lot of divides, right, that are happening in the public and in the media. With your work, have you seen groups that are typically divided coming together around making good things happen for these communities? You know, I think that that this issue doesn't have to be divisive. And in many places, it's not. There's a lot of bipartisan support for this, right? There historically has been in Appalachia where, you know, community groups have, have tried to and have been able to get resolutions from, actually, they got more than 36 local resolutions across all central Appalachia from both local Democratic and Republican elected officials in support of Obama's previous program that I talked to you about. So again, it doesn't have to be divisive. I think what we have to realize though, is that this is fundamentally an economic development and an economic justice issue. And so we need to make sure that the people that are most affected by the problem are at the forefront of developing solutions, are listened to by state and federal decision makers, and are not asked as an afterthought, you know, what do you need or what do you think of this solution, right? And that's what we've been trying to do with MET is, is help give the support of these communities so that they can be out in front championing their the, the great and innovative ideas that, you know, they've come up with and they've been working on for the last number of years. Right. And that importance of listening and really the more important role is in just facilitating the empowering of those communities themselves, right? Can you give any specific examples of those groups coming together that you've seen in this work? Yeah, you know, I, I would I would actually say in Western New York, it's it's been pretty cool um, what the community did. Environmental justice groups came together with labor, came together with local other um, affected community members, came together with the town, right? So elected officials, the school district, and they drafted a community-driven long-term economic development plan for the community. So that was an example where, you know, a number of groups that have, have been on, you know, maybe different sides of different debates really focused on the needs of the community first and foremost and, and prepared that plan. And, you know, there are a lot of other examples um, like that with this, you know, with this work. One component, Heidi, that you had mentioned with the example of Navajo Nation is that tax revenue that's generated from the coal industry in a place. You know, and I know here where we're based in Montana, a large amount of our state's budget is funded through coal extraction, um, you know, which a lot of folks even within our state 
might not be aware of just how much of it is funded from that in our services. You know, what are the conversations happening about how to supplement or, you know, really replace that tax revenue? You know, if renewables can help to provide that or what other elements can fill that role? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's really three, I think, big questions that when we think about transition, we have to you know, think about. One, what do you do to replace lost jobs? Two, what do you do to replace lost tax revenue? And three, what do you do with the site, right? Those are the three big fundamental qu- questions that we always address in every place that we go. And there are a lot of people thinking about the erosion of the tax revenue. It's, you know, it's, it's tricky because sometimes you see solutions that do one but not the other, right? So, you know, data centers, for example, data centers can do a lot to help bring in new tax revenues, but they hire temporary workers, but they don't require a lot of people to be employed long-term. So I think it's really important to get that balance right. There's one of the things we don't know enough about, but we're researching now, and by we, I mean both the JTF and also the, the broader community and some of our partners, but looking at how much renewable energy can do to replace the local tax base. And that's found to be more significant in in different places. So again, that work is all cutting edge. But again, going back to the bigger question is, you know, there's no question about how much revenue these communities and this resource has brought and still brings in to both localities in the state. And so, you know, it's a it's it's an important question that we need to tackle in order to be able to, you know, get on the other side of this. Sure. And no easy answer to that, right? It's it's just going to take some creative and attentive thinking and, and planning, right? And throughout this conversation, you've given several calls to action for different groups. Uh, do you have any final calls to action for, we'll start with policymakers on uh, local, state, and on federal levels regarding this transition? Yeah, yeah. I think that there's so much to be done at the at the local levels. But I think, you know, I think right now with the executive orders from last week, as I mentioned, Biden filled his his campaign pledge and created a task force. That's an excellent first step. But I think we need to remember it is it is really just a first step. And, you know, I would say three things to the federal policy makers. You know, first, that task force has a period over the next 60 days where it is supposed to be listening to the people that are most affected. And actually through the NET process, we did a lot of that. And so we are here to help, you know, any of those federal decision makers who want, you know, want to hear more about what these communities need. But I think the first thing that federal policymakers need to think about is that they have to make sure that the people that are most affected by these problems are engaged in developing policy solutions. That would be number one. Number two, after this report comes out and after the administration gets a better sense of what it wants to do, we're hoping that it creates a more longer term office of economic transition. And I think there there's a short term need for maybe like a short term effort to get started at the, you know, at the White House. But really, these communities need something much more robust in the long term. I mean, we at the JTF have been working on this problem. And it's a it's a complicated issue, right? It's it's because of the economic workforce and infrastructure implications. It's going to be pretty difficult for just a couple people in the White House whose main jobs are, you know, they have 10 other jobs to really focus on on what this needs, right? So we'd really like to see a, a bigger investment and some resources behind coordinating and collaborating on this. 
Third thing we should make sure that federal policymakers do is invest in the current federal programs that are out there. So those are programs that are still in existence, like power, like the Assistance for Coal Communities program at the Economic Development Administration. USDA has a ton of programs. And there needs to be funding on broadband, right? I mean, I think that that's, a, that's an issue that we haven't talked about today, but you know, we've, we've taken a look at the coal communities across the, that we work with across this country and a huge percentage of them are still really disconnected. Mm-hmm. And unless you have that access, it's, it's a fundamental barrier, right? You cannot do economic development in these places. People can't do remote work. Companies don't wanna go where there's no access, right? So forget about stimulating the local economy. That can't happen, number one. Number two, it just compounds inequities, right? So that, those just get deeper because as you can imagine, you know, whose kids can't go to school, who can't access healthcare, right? It furthers the divide between the haves and the have-nots, right? And then lastly, you know, there's a lot of people working on the problem of climate change. And to do that, we need a smart grid and we need, you know, we need all kinds of clean energy 2.0 solutions. We are not going to be able to do that if these communities aren't connected. So again, just to repeat three things, make sure those most affected are engaged. Number two, at least in the short term, establish an office of economic transition. Think about something more robust in the long term. And then three, bring more more funding to the current programs that are out there, at least as a starting point. Hmm. Yeah. And thank you for bringing up the concept of broadband and the necessity there. Um, It really shows you all of the elements that can often get overlooked by those who aren't working in this field, right? And seeing all the needs that are out there and and the different layers of needs, right? And that holistic approach. And any final calls to action for listeners who are outside of coal communities? You know, as we see this urgent need to take action on climate change and transitioning away from a dependency on fossil fuels, you know, things for the public to keep in mind as they call on their legislators for making change and on industry for making change, things that that they should keep in mind as we move forward in this work and, and try to navigate the best way forward. Yeah, and thank you for, for asking that. I think investment in these communities is is in the best interest of everybody in this country, right? It's in our best interest as a, as a nation. We're never gonna be able to develop broad spread, durable support for climate solutions if we don't take care of the people who are affected first, right? So we really need to think about addressing that, that piece. I just see us in this country almost heading toward two different Americas, right? In the communities that we work with, these rural communities, these places have not had the economic opportunities that people on the coast and people in more urban areas have. And I think that if we're going to continue to bridge the divides in this country, we have to do something as a nation to reduce these discrepancies and these disparities. And, you know, there are, we know all kinds of other economic injustice issues across this country, but, but we just, we can't overlook rural America. I think if we want to be stronger as a country, we're going to need to, to increase the economic opportunity in these places. And I think that the climate, the political and the economic climate that will result will, will really benefit us all. Absolutely. No, thank you for bringing that up and mentioning that. And for folks within coal communities or otherwise communities that are directly affected from a transition away from the coal industry and fossil fuels, you know, where are some places that they can turn to right now, you know, to start preparing for that, whether it's things that JTF offers or otherwise. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. So I'd encourage anyone who's interested and who is in a community that maybe hasn't had a, a closure announced yet, but they know it's coming. I mean, we've we found through our work that the best solutions happen when communities prepare early, right? And they, they actually take that proactive action. So um, for those that know that this is coming and you can see the writing on the wall and you're not sure what to do, I'd, I'd encourage you to, to visit our website. And we have our cold community transition blueprint. This is intended to be almost like a, a one stop shop for for communities and we've got our the first section of that blueprint up which is called getting started and uh city council members, mayors, um, local citizens that want to know how have other communities um, done this? How do they, who do you look to for success? We'll find a number of, of resources there. Um, so I'd encourage them to do that. And I'd also encourage them to, to contact us. You know, we want to hear your stories. We want to be able to put you in contact with resources that your community needs. And then, you know, as I mentioned to you in the beginning of the conversation, the other half of our work is to do grant making, right? And so we're, we're able to provide provide um, financial support to communities that are really struggling with these issues. So contact us. We want to hear from you. Thank you so much to Heidi for speaking with us. You can find out more about the JTF at justtransitionfund.org. For those within coal communities, there's information there for how to contact them directly, and they also have posted resources such as the Just Transition Blueprint and the National Economic Transition Platform, which was crafted by local, labor, and tribal leaders living within American coal communities and provides a framework for creating resilient economies for places of transitioning away from coal industries. You can find this platform and other resources at nationaleconomictransition.org. We move now to the state where we, Stories for Action, are based in, Montana. Coal Strip is a township in the eastern region of the state, two hours east of Billings, with a residential population of 2,400 people. A coal mine started up there in 1924 to fuel the railroad. It was shut down in the 50s, and then in the 70s when energy demands in the Pacific Northwest increased, the mine went back into operation. Additionally, four power plant units were built in the 70s and 80s to generate power that is primarily transmitted out of state to the Pacific Northwest. The power plant's main customers, Washington and Oregon, have said that they will not accept any energy produced from coal after 2025, giving a clear expiration to the demand for coal strips coal energy production. The mine and power plants are owned by a mix of companies, primarily from Pennsylvania, Washington, and Colorado. Perhaps often when looking at environmental impacts and contributions to climate change, it can be easy for some to villainize anything associated with the fossil fuel industry, confusing the industry leadership with the real-life people that work on the ground, going to work every day in an often high-risk environment to support their families, their communities, and genuinely worry about what's coming down the line. Brian Weir is a mechanic welder who has worked in the coal industry at Coal Strip for 21 years, 10 years in the mine, and now 11 years in the power plant. He speaks with us about his community and what his concerns are regarding the current unknowns of the industry. You know, and I'm going to first, I'll tell you right now, these are purely my opinions. I don't represent anybody except myself and my family. I, I just want to help the community out. And that's why, you know, you and I are having this conversation. Absolutely. So, my dad worked for Kaiser Steel. We live in Fontana, California. My dad worked for Kaiser Steel. And in the late 70s, early 80s, the steel industry went in the toilet. Um, those jobs were moved overseas. And my, we, we come back from vacation and dad went to work and he was laid off. 
So here he is looking for a job and ended up got an interview with back then it was Montana power. Dad, dad came up here before we did and helped start up the two big units, three and four. We came shortly after that. I started, uh, finished my seventh grade year here, graduated from high school here in, uh, in 1988. I uh, went to a great high school. It's a great community. You know, we had a brand new high school that was built by coal severance tax money. I mean, it was a class A school. We had 500 plus kids, um, got out of high school in 88, didn't know what to do, bounced around a little bit and uh, got into uh, the Carpenters Union. Worked in that till I was uh, 30, helped build refineries, helped build power plants, ended up getting married when I was in 97. And my wife, her dad and her, her uncle actually helped build, build the drag line at the coal mine. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of a family thing and had uh, two great kids a few years later. My son is a sophomore at Montana Tech studying automotive. My daughter's a, a senior in high school. She just got a pretty decent scholarship to Western Washington University in Bellingham. My wife's a, you know, a cheerleader coach, you know, a substitute teacher in the, in the school system. We have a great school system. And I'll go back to my dad. My dad's retired. Um, I actually got to work with him uh, when he, before he retired at the power plant, I've been there be 11 years come in March, hoping to get about five more. I mean, with the current legislation that's going on, we'll have no place to in, in the state of Washington or, or the Pacific Northwest. We won't have any place to ship our power, our product anymore. But, you know, I do believe cold strip will always be here, but things will be different when the plants are gone and they're putting in a big wind farm north of town. And I'm not against that stuff, you know? I'm not against anything that creates jobs, but what I'm more concerned about is what happens in the end to this community. You know, we get our water pumped in from the Yellowstone River, just like anybody else does along the Yellowstone River. That's where they get their drinking water. It's pumped in 33 miles through some enormous pumps and pipelines. And then we have a nice little lake out here. It's called the Surge Pond. The reason why they call it the Surge Pond is it's um, surge water for the plants. It's also used in processed water, right? For boiler water and, and, and the scrubbing water and, and the city has their own uh, water plant and for our drinking water. When those plants go away, there's a really good chance that those pumps might stop pumping because who's gonna pay for that? I mean, right now I talked to a city council person and the powers that be that own those pumps wanted a 17% increase in one year on the water that the city of Colstrip buys. Without that water, you know, this town might just dry up. So explain that to me. So the company that owns the power plant also owns the infrastructure that supplies the city of Colstrip with its water. Is that right? The company, the owners um, of uh, units three and four, they're made up of six different owners. One of the owners that's in the state of Washington wants a 17% increase, from my understanding, on the water that the city buys for our drinking water. That's a big pile of money. So that, that's, that's an issue that the community is probably get, is facing right now. Wow. Yeah, that's one of the many issues, right, that the city and the community is facing, right, as things change and, and looking forward. You know, something that probably not many folks outside of Coal Strip are aware of. 
And for those, you know, we have listeners all over the world who may not know Colstrip, but even those who are residents within Montana may not know what the town of Colstrip actually looks like or that community looks like. Can you paint that picture of what Colstrip is and what it looks like? So yeah, you you can and really you can see the you can see the drag lines unless you get outside of town here. You can't tell there's coal mine because of the reclamation that's been done. The, the, of course, the four plants. I mean, they they this tower, the the three and four stacks. They're 750 feet tall. So I mean, you you come into town, that's the first thing you see, you know. So if you come in from north on Highway 39, you're going to see a nice high school. You're going to see a parks homes you know it's a mix of of homes and and trailer houses and you know i live in a trailer house and you know i've got a nice lot i don't have anybody behind me i got nice rolling hills good neighbors good neighborhoods you know that's why it's such a great community Hmm. and it's worth noting that the town of colstrip was built upon the coal plant's existence right it didn't exist as a town before the mine and then the power plants came in right and it really built a very robust town and community especially at its peak right can you tell us a little bit about what what that looked like in the 90s 80s and 90s we had movie theater here we had uh, restaurants a bowling alley uh, we even had like a little mall if you wanted to call it where you had the hardware store in there and there was a, a place you could go buy uh, your athletic shoes and when we were a kid and do t-shirts and but all them businesses are all gone so, and when, when that, was it that those business started to fade away? Montana Power had a, had a layoff, 95, 96, started cutting back. And so when people start cutting back, you know, or people lose their jobs, they, they move away. So you could probably say, you know, business-wise, it just was a steady decline of losing businesses. Production was still up, but, you know, people came and went. And with all of these changes that yourself and and the community has seen, you know, with the ebbs and flows of the coal industry, and especially now looking forward with the global shift away from coal, there's also the hard line in the sand of 2025, right? You know, the power that's generated at coal strips power plants is transmitted almost completely out of state, right, to the Pacific Northwest. And those states have declared that they will not take power generated by coal after 2025, right? So there's even that really distinct timeline that you guys are looking at. You know, can you talk a little bit about that, of what the conversations are like with yourself and your peers and those who work with you and and as well as in your community of that awareness of what's coming and what they need to plan for? I don't know if you can prepare for anything that's coming like that. I mean, people people don't like change, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe maybe 25 years ago, we shouldn't have our heads in the sand, but when you're making money and you're Mm -hmm. working, you're living... You, just like anybody else, if, if times are good, times are good. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe, maybe we, maybe we should have been looking, you know, maybe there should have been something else come to us and say, Hey, we'd like to do this. But, you know, a lot of that times that takes money from a corporation, you know, or the government. I think people right now are just, are just riding it out. There's a lot of highly skilled individuals here from the control room operator. looks like he's sitting in a spaceship to, to me, the mechanic welder that, that works on the machines that, that grind the coal and pump the water, to the utility, use the labor, shovel and ash. 
I think people are just going to work as long as they can. And what have the conversations been like with those that you work with of, of realistically looking at the future and the evolution of these jobs and the change that's coming? You know, are a lot of folks talking about what that could realistically look like and finding alternative options? You know, I think you're always going to have some people that are, you know, are, are going are to be hardliners on coal and coal production. But, you know, you know, as well as I do, change is inevitable. Now, the young guys, you know, in their 20s and 30s, you know, that are they're making good money. They got good benefits, good union benefits, good union pay. They're looking and I don't blame them, you know, and and they're leaving. They're going to working for a hospital or or they're uh, going to the refineries because they, they pay well. And that's kind of what it's about. You know, you're going to go where the money's at. You know, my son's, you know, going to, like I said, going to tech, studying automotive. This year, they're getting into hybrids and electrics, which I think the technology is great. I mean, I, personally, if, if I could have an electric pickup, I'd, I'd probably have one. The technology is getting so much greater these days. And, you know, hopefully there's a new industrial revolution and it, and it pays good and it sure. has good benefits. Sure. Yeah. And... You know, these positions, as you were saying, they're very highly skilled, highly trained positions, right? That, that often years of training went into these positions, you know, that just to say, oh, you know, just transfer easily to another generic labor job. It doesn't always translate like that, right? Yeah. I mean, you hear this, well, this retraining, this retraining, retrain for what? You know, if it was, if the pay was comparable. I'm sure that probably wouldn't be an issue at the end of the day. And you do, and you and I do, and everybody else, we look at our bank account. And if we don't like where we're at, we try to better ourselves. Right. And for our families and the things we need to support. And I, yes. And I, and I guarantee if I didn't have this job, 90, per, 90 plus percent of it is, is because of organized labor. I wouldn't have the ability to, you know, help my kids out with college, buy them a good vehicle. Because like I said, it's a hundred miles to somewhere from Colstrip. And I chose, I chose this life. I did. And I'm fortunate enough to have this job, get this pay and retirement and able to do that. And I know a lot of people aren't. I, I know that there's people out there working two and three jobs and just, just getting by. You know, I, I, I understand. Trust mm -hmm. me. I've been there. You know, I think that's the biggest obstacle. We're talking with people. What is that that you'd say is the biggest obstacle? Well, the biggest obstacle is, am I going to make the same amount of money? Am I going to be able to make the same living? Like I told you, I, I mean, I don't have a, I don't have a big house on the flathead, you know? Sure. <laughs> I, I live in a, I live in a 1993 trailer house and it's my choice. I moved it in here. You know, I own the lot, you know, most, everybody's pretty modest and, and everybody out here likes clean water, green grass and blue skies. You know, there ain't a one of us that don't. But I, like I said, I'm, I'm really worried about the community and what's going to happen. here. I, I understand. I mean, you know, all good things got to come to an end one time or another. Right. I, I just don't want it to end up being a big hole in the ground. I mean, look at Butte. Look what happened when the when they just pulled up stakes, stopped pumps and look what happened. You know, right. Butte, sur Butte survived. Butte is a survivor. And Colstrip will survive. I, I hope it does. I mean, this is my home, my wife's home my parents home it's just an all-around good place to live and and good opportunities and for for kids and that's what i see that's what i see going away sure yeah and 
I think those are things that a lot of people can relate to, right? And have you been involved in or seen from other groups or people within Coal Strip any type of official planning or discussion about the change that's coming down the line and ways for the community to prepare? City Council, you know, they've been working with some people. They're work, they're talking, you know, they're, they're worried about the water. Here's another thing when, when these things go away, my taxes might go through the ceiling because they're, they're a big tax generator. I mean, that fund is huge. Sure. No, and across the state, it's, it's a significant funder, right? And have you or any union leadership or the city council been approached by the owners of the company itself about, you know, we recognize the change that's coming down the line. You know, we all see this coming and how they might be involved in some of that transition and the support for the community in that or just approaching union leadership or employees about a change that everyone sees coming. Well, you know, the, the company I work for, you know, they say that they're going to they're going to be actually they're going to be coal free by 2028. But that's not coal strip. You know, they own a lot of other stuff as policymakers or, you know, uh, the, the, the owners or whatever. I think they're trying to do something for the jobs here, but I just don't know if they're doing anything for the community. I don't see anything personally. I mean, granted, they don't want us to leave yet. They still got to run this place up, up until the end. Right. It's kind of a, it's a weird situation, but I, I'm going to tell you the only thing that the legislation right now is trying to save coal strip through some bills that's going on. And, and save, that, save, save it by keeping the coal operation going or save it by helping the community in the save it by keeping the power plants running. Okay. Has there been any legislation for the community? No, nobody's came out and said, Hey, we'll uh, let, let's get something going for the, for the water. You know, let's let's make, let's get something going. Let's keep those pumps going so we can have good drinking water and at least go swimming in the summertime. But no, no policymakers or other other corporations or whatever offered to help the community. And in late January, the Biden administration announced the formation of a working group to focus on just this of transitions for coal communities and looking out for them. And they're in the middle of a 60-day process of gathering information on the ground to put together a report to kind of lay the groundwork for the best way forward, right, for what this will continue to look like. As someone within one of these communities, what would be a message you would want to have that administration and that working group keep in mind as they go forward with their work, or even messages you'd like to say to local and state legislators to start focusing on this kind of backs up a little bit wasn't was and you know, i wasn't some of those money set aside or some of that set aside during the obama administration exactly yeah the the power initiative it had started up under obama and then it got kind of closed down and now it's being brought back to life as well as this designated task force assigned to specifically this work. Well, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you what, if, if they could come in and, and or somebody and create good paying living wage, organized labor jobs with benefits, you know, if that's the end result, I think that's what I, I think that's what needs to happen. At the end of the day, that's that's what it's all about. It's about a living wage and being able to provide for your family. And I and I also understand this that a lot of these a lot of these jobs in the renewable sector are just not right here, and a lot of people want to be right here. So it may not 
be where you want to be. Maybe if there was a new, maybe if there was a small new plant here, mm. you know, that technology is, is, is fantastic. Um, it's gotten way better than, you know, could have back to the days of the seventies, right? Just like anything, we've gotten better. If there were some jobs like that created here, it would be great. I think there needs to be some constructive financing through the government or through even the environmental side of it and the fossil fuel corporation side. They really never have come out and had an op or gave us an option. And with a lot of this conversation around fossil fuel industry and climate and job creation and environmental impact, you know, it can look like there's just simply a lot of divide, which there is, you know, but I feel like a lot of it could get resolved if there were just more, you know, conversations between groups and really transparent dialogue and, and truly listening to one another, right? How do you see that from your perspective and, and from your position of what you would say to different groups that are working on different aspects of this? And some are, you know, working on multiple aspects of it. A message that you would say to all positions of the conversation and of the issues, you know, to keep in mind going forward. It just seems like it's right now we're, we're, we're divided, like you said. We got one side that wants to run like hell and we got another side that wants to shut everything down. There's too much division in this country right now. I'm a middle guy. Where are we? Where are us middle people, us middle working class people? We just, mm -hmm. we've got, we're, we're so extreme right now. We, we got this side and we got that side and nobody wants to meet in the middle anymore. Like I said, I don't think there's a one of us out here that doesn't like clean water, clean air, and blue skies. The majority of these people are, are sportsmen. They love hunting. You know, they fish, they, they hike. I mean, they're outdoors people. I don't think there's a one of them that would want to see just, you know, rampant pollution. I think we're just so divided right now. I, I, I'm just, I just don't know the answer on that. Right. Yeah. And I don't know if we ever really could, you know, nail it on the head. It's just more that concept, how do we move forward in a productive way, you know, that really would mean a more transparent conversations with each other and listening. Otherwise, we just create these enemies in our head when we're just looking at headlines and having generalized conversations within our own groups, right? Oh, exactly. Yeah. I'm not a hate the greenie. I'm not a, you know, environmental laws have done some really good things. Let's go back and let's go back. And I think it was like 1974 where the Mine Reclamation Act came into, where you just can't leave spoil piles up anymore. And those environmental laws created jobs. We would literally plant tens of thousands of trees and sagebrush. Some environmental laws, I mean, they've done some good things for us. If there wasn't any laws or any mandates, it probably wouldn't be a good place to live in this country. Sure, absolutely. And really all of these groups or entities, you know, whether their leading platform is for the environment or climate or jobs or social impact and community building or all of it you know it's all for the betterment of the land and the people right it's it comes from a good place but perhaps we could benefit from releasing the intersection of these concepts and probably get some really good things done if if forces came together right you know and you're always going to have your hardliners right sure I mean, you see them on both sides of it. And then, like I said, there's, there's me, there's the guy in the middle. I wish there was, I wish there was a lot more of us, 
maybe we maybe we can get something done. But like you said, you know, talking and and, and getting to know, you know, what's on the ground. Hopefully, there. I get maybe I'm just kind of at a loss for words here because I hope this community survives. I really do, and hopefully something else comes in here and puts people to work. Because with without work, with without a paycheck, there's no self worth. And without without self worth, there's your poverty, there's your social problems, drug addictions, alcohol addictions, and, and nobody wants that. Right, of course. So put America back to work and and have a living wage, and your social problems go away. Thank you to Brian for sharing part of your story with us today. As he mentioned, his statements are his own opinions, and it's important to remember how many different perspectives and stories are unique within each community and across the country. This underscores the importance, whether as citizens or policymakers, to reach out to hear from the stories on the ground before forming decisions or generalizations. We move now to Appalachia, where eight states make up the region's coal production. Alabama, Kentucky, Maryland, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, and West Virginia. Coal mining in the region began in the 1880s, peaked in the 1920s, and has gone through ups and downs in the industry ever since. Communities across the region are at different phases of a transition away from coal, some with mines completely closed, others knowing what may be coming. Though the industry has brought many economic benefits to the region, there have also been social and environmental downsides, health issues for not only the workers, including black lung disease, but also for other residents from air, water, and ground pollution. The Appalachian Citizens Law Center, or ACLC, assists coal communities in this region through political advocacy, organizing, and litigation. Rebecca Shelton is ACLC's coordinator of policy and organizing. Before her current position, Rebecca was engaged in research on just economic transitions while pursuing a PhD in sustainability science at Arizona State University. She's now returned to her home state of Kentucky. She speaks with us now about what a just transition from coal means for Appalachian communities. At ACLC, we have a three-pronged approach to our work, and we focus on political advocacy, organizing, and litigation. First, our, our work is targeted at legacy costs uh, that affect public health and safety, such as making sure that minors who are sick and have black lung disease receive their benefits, you know, making sure that communities have access to affordable, clean water, really to ensure that the people who are going to continue to live out their lives in, in this place, you know, whether they can actually be retrained in or, or participate in, in a new economy or not are, are valued and provided the services and, and the support that they need. You know, we want to ensure that folks have a role in deciding what comes next here, um, which means that a lot of our a lot of our work in the organization is really about seeking information, you know, about investments into the communities, about policy that may affect our lives. And then making that information transparent and, and helping open up channels through which people can, can access decision makers or track the legislative changes that are relevant. So our work is really, let's make our communities healthy and safe and, and take care of, of people who have really worked for, for many, many years in this industry. And, and also, let's make sure we, we all have a say in, in what comes next. Now that, that approach just makes so much sense, right? And to really not just look at it with broad strokes of creating more generic development, but to really recognize the individualized needs on the ground, right? There's so much more than just 
the economics that's tied up in economic transitions, right? I, I mean, there's the way that we build our identities and cultures around livelihoods that connect us with our landscape is is real. So these shifts are, you know, it's, it's very important to, to look at them through an, an economic lens, but it's also really important to to be aware of both the ecological, environmental consequences of, of what's come before and what's needed in order to build a, a new economy and, and make this a place safe and, and healthy for, for folks to live in. And there's also, you know, a lot of culture and, and identity that, that's wrapped up in these changes as well. And so it's very complex. Sure. Yeah. And shows you the need for these holistic approaches, you know, that look at all of the, the different facets that that are involved, right? And your work has been on the ground within these communities in Appalachia. And for listeners of the public that are outside of these communities, can you help to paint a picture of what the reality is like for those communities, you know, both historically and also the current things that they are up against and also overcoming? It's really difficult for me to describe a single reality um, and I think that's something for, for listeners to just be very aware of, to try not to think that there's one scenario or one picture that applies to all, all coal communities or all people in these communities. There are so many different ways um, in which people have been impacted by the coal industry over the many years, whether positively or negatively or, or some of both. The second thing I'll say is, you know, the coal industry for uh, as long as it's been around, really has always had its ups and downs or its its booms and its busts, right? In the last couple of years, again, there's been another round of, of bankruptcy in the industry and some really egregious practices that were shined a light on when Black Jewel went bankrupt and didn't even pay wages and, and clawed back checks out of miners' accounts. And so I think that there has been a fair amount of reckoning with the fact that the industry, you know, even if it does remain in some places and in some form, isn't going to be the regional economic driver that it that it once was and that it has been for the last century. And that's devastating and, and painful for, for a lot of reasons for on both individual and community levels, you know, to lose your job, to be a leader who's dealing continually with declining public revenues and, and thus and being a citizen who's thus your public services are declining because there aren't the revenues to sustain them, it's just gotten harder and harder over the last decade. And we're, we're also in the midst of a global pandemic and an economic crisis, which just exacerbates you know, so many of the issues, uh, unemployment, reemployment, and lack of public revenue that, we're, that we were already dealing with. So it's been really hard, and I think that we're ready. We're ready for solutions. We're ready for what works and for a change. For sure. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And organizations such as ACLC, such as your work, has been very involved in a just transition for coal communities for quite some time, you know, but it's it's really only recently that that term has become more so in the public eye. Can you tell us what that fair and just transition could look like and what that means for specifically communities in Appalachia. So for for ACLC, you know, I think if this transition is going to be just, the first thing is that it can't be driven from the top down. Coal communities and Appalachian coal communities are are very diverse, you know, within within counties, within states and across them, there's there's such a diverse 
history of extraction and history of leadership and investment and uh, what's going to work in, in one place isn't going to work in, in the next. And I think that that means that it has to be bottom up. The other reason to, to argue for a more bottom up process is that there's there's so many people and leaders here that have been developing ideas and, and enterprises and projects to, to diversify the economy and make our communities safer and cleaner. And we should listen to them because this isn't new, right? This isn't, this is just happening now. It's been happening for a while and folks have been working on it. And there's a lot of knowledge about what works and what doesn't and why. And that, that knowledge really lives in, in these communities and not in, in D.C., the second thing I'll say about just transition, something that we, we think about a lot, is that the, the word transition denotes a period of time, you know, that there's going to be a, a gradual adjustment or shift of some kind, but we don't actually have time to make change. You know, we need it right now. We need investment right now, but it, it actually does take time to develop a new enterprise or, you know, get one's entrepreneurial project off the ground. So even if we're investing in that and supporting that, it's still going to take time to move that forward. So when we, when I think about transition and how we, you know, take care of people right now, the, the good news is that we can create jobs and stimulate economic growth immediately by investing in cleaning up the land and water and, and by investing in infrastructure projects. You know, I think about this in, in sort of, there, there are two kinds of investments that are needed right now. And one will help us in this interim period where, we're, where we are actually building up some new enterprises and, and new economies. And that's, let's, let's clean up our abandoned mine lands. Let's clean up and shore up our water infrastructure. Let's build out our, our broadband. You know, those investments create uh, immediate jobs, immediate impacts, uh, both inter- economically, but also in terms of our health and, and safety. And so people aren't living next to, to unstable lands or, or polluted waters. And it's, it's written, right? These ideas have, are not new. They're, they're ready to go. And so not only will it not take time to, to legislate or, or uh, move these kinds of investments forward, they'd have immediate impact while we're also thinking about these sort of bigger, bolder uh, investments that we need to help build up what we want to see in five years from now. Yeah, and no, that emphasizes that the importance and the success of collaboration. When we look at stories on the ground, there's some really cool examples of collaboration and, and folks working together to make good things happen. Do you have an, a specific example of this type of collaborative work taking place? You know, I, when I think about collaboration and the, the groups that we that we work with, I mean, I always want to to lift up the group that really inspires me, which is the Black Lung Associations and, and their many allies. And they they formed as, you know, solidarity groups within their own communities. Like this is, we've, we've all been minors. We, a lot of us are sick now and here's, let's help each other understand what the benefits process is, how to get access to it. You know, it's, it's not a divided issue. No one is, is against providing miners who have worked hard and and lived their lives um, working underground. No one is against providing those miners the, the care that they need. It's just a really shining example that we're ready to stand alongside one another in order to to help each other out. There's been a lot of looking at 
the coal mining industry and coal mining communities from the outside for a long time from groups that aren't, aren't based here and sort of prescriptive advice coming in from folks who really don't understand the, the complexity and, and the challenges surrounding, you know, both the positive things that the coal industry has, has brought to the community and some of the negative ones. And so those issues, I think, have become contentious because of that, you know, inside-outside dynamic, whereas, you know, when we come together from the inside and, and talk about some of the challenges that we face, there's a lot more common ground. Yeah, that's... It's extremely important in this work and and in all different sectors, right, that that approach. And you've already provided, you know, very clear calls to action for folks, but do you have any final words for policymakers at all levels of local, state, and federal um, of things that you'd like to see them keep in mind as they go forward with their work around these issues? I would just really urge the administration to dedicate themselves to that process of, of listening and learning from those on the ground. And though that can be a heavy lift, it'll make the load lighter down the road um, because there's already so much lived ex- experience and also uh, problem solving and, and solution building experience that from within these communities and, and that these leaders, that leaders have knowledge about. And the other thing that I'd say is that the executive order was signed alongside a lot of, of executive orders aimed at addressing climate change. So the other you know, real call to, to action I have for the administration is that they be just as committed to fossil fuel communities and workers as they are to, to addressing climate. It can't be secondary. You know, They have to do this right because we'll all come out better on the other side if there's actually committed action that matches the rhetoric and, and the promises this time around. Yeah, absolutely. Right. That that real action, you know, and not just these words that sound really promising in speeches. Right. And in your work in these Appalachian communities, have you seen any approach from the companies and the fossil fuel industry itself of coming in and, and working with these communities or being a part of that conversation of a transition and and seeing that coming and looking at how they can be a part of that transition. None that I've been privy to. Um, you know, we've been even in the last couple of years, the the industry has been fighting the small fees that they pay for funding the Black Lung Disability Trust Fund for funding the Abandoned Mine Land Fund. And, you know, in, in recent bankruptcy proceedings, there hasn't been shown much commitment from the part of, of the industry to, to take care of some of the, the damage it's caused. I have not seen strong indications where I am in terms of the, the coal mining industry working to actively figure out what's next and in terms of what's best for people, for, for workers and, and the communities that they've been operating within. That's not to say that that doesn't exist somewhere else or that even not to say that it doesn't exist here. I, I just am not, not aware of it. Hmm. Yeah. And as you are someone who works within these communities on the ground, what would be something that you would want to say to the public outside of these communities? you know, to keep in mind as the world calls for the urgent action on climate action and 
a transition away from fossil fuels that urgently needs to happen. You know, what is a message that you'd like those folks to keep in mind as they're reaching out to their legislators or even in shaping what this conversation will be about the necessary action to take forward? Yeah. Reach out. You know, I think there are so many groups that are are working alongside frontline communities, whether it's, you know, at a power plant site or, or coal mining communities that are thinking about all of this as how all of these pieces work together. There's a lot of synergy to be found. And so I think that if we can first listen to one another before we come up with our own solutions that we put our stamp on and finalize and start advocating for, I mean, let's, let's do that because we can connect across places and And, you know, the truth of it is, is that everyone has been impacted by the coal mining industry because coal has, was exported out from these communities to, to fuel the nation. And so people need to grapple with that and understand that and and understand their connectivity to these places. And we have to understand now that we, we have other common challenges, which is making sure that those places are, are taken care of as we also address climate. Thank you so much to Rebecca for sharing your insight with us today. You can find out more about the Appalachian Citizens Law Center at aclc.org. For those within these communities, they have resources to help with things such as receiving black lung assistance benefits, mine safety, environmental impact issues, and more. Our guests today have shown us pieces of a big picture in finding better ways forward. I think a consistent message which we can apply to all sectors and issues either in our personal lives or on a policy or business level, whether it's social issues, economic concerns, climate and environmental impact, is the importance of looking at the intersection of these concepts. To look at holistic approaches, to work from the bottom up with community-led action, and to truly listen to the voices of those on the ground and to those who may hold different values. It's easy to create a villain, but it's much more productive to listen to one another and take meaningful action. If we lead with this and show real follow-through, I think we can ensure that good intention gives way to real sustainable actions and solutions. On the topic of misconceptions, initiatives such as the Green New Deal has garnered some of this misguided villainization. It's worth noting that the Green New Deal states that it is simply a framework for transitioning to renewable energy in a way that provides living wage jobs and a just transition for workers currently in the fossil fuel industry, frontline communities, and also calls for investing in things such as modern infrastructure and broadband. In other episodes, we've spoken with people from a variety of standpoints, from commercial fishermen to farmers to those protecting their communities from chemical pollutants, and they've all said how there's no single silver bullet for a better way forward. It will take action on all levels, but perhaps the closest thing we have to a consistent tool is acknowledging our blind spots, no matter what core value we stand up for, and looking outside of our bubbles to those who experience a very different reality than ourselves and recognizing our human connections. Thank you all so much for listening. This will be a great episode to share with your local or state policymakers, those in coal communities, or your friends and families of all interests. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast for more stories to help you find your role in a thriving planet and strong communities. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories for Action, and Twitter at stories number four action. Learn about all of our work at storiesforaction.org 
You can browse inspiring stories from others or submit your own for us to share. Thank you so much for being a part of our community, where our mission is to use the power of storytelling to share human connection and advance a thriving planet for all.